Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. Erica Hill is joins me. We have a lot of big news to get to. Let's get things started. If on a Friday, we should go ahead. I think we should. Let's go yeah, ahead. Yeah, let's get this started because then it gets you close to your weekend, Phil. With five things to know for this day. Breaking overnight, Donald Trump not running for House Speaker, but he is throwing his weight behind Congressman Jim Jordan. The big question, will the endorsement push the Ohio representative closer to the vote threshold he needs? And U.S. funding to Ukraine hangs in the balance of the speaker fight as Russia strikes again overnight. Former President Trump reportedly revealing nuclear submarine secrets to this guy, that's an Australian billionaire, who also happens to be a member of Mar-a-Lago. And the Biden administration announcing it will begin deporting thousands of Venezuelans. It's another immigration about face after the White House said it would build a border wall while also saying walls don't work. This September jobs report due out this morning. We are monitoring the impact of the nationwide strikes on those numbers. This is their science of possible progress in the auto worker strike. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Friday. And we want to start with the breaking news from overnight. Former President Trump throwing his, quote, complete and total support behind Jim Jordan, the Ohio Republican, to be the next Speaker of the House. He announced his big endorsement on social media just after midnight. Trump himself said he had been toying with the idea of serving as Speaker temporarily, even though he's currently embroiled in a civil fraud trial and facing four different felony criminal cases. Trump was even considering a trip to Capitol Hill in the coming days. But we're told now he's not expected to go. So what comes next on the heels of this? On Monday, the House GOP conference is set to meet as they, of course, scramble to pick a new leader. On Tuesday, they'll hear from candidates Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise in a closed-door forum. An internal election is expected Wednesday, and we could potentially see a House-wide vote for a new speaker that same day. The timing, though, could slip here if a candidate, depending on a candidate, can unify 217 Republicans. And that is still a very open question. Whoever comes out on top will need to win over both moderates and hardline conservatives who just ousted Kevin McCarthy. Jim Jordan tells CNN he's the one who can do it. How are you going to get them in line if you were to become the speaker? I mean, those, those, I disagree with, you know, what, what took place, but those guys are friends of mine. And, and uh, you know, I think that's the that's the message I've been talking to my colleagues about is who can who can bring the eight in, in into the on you know part of the team who can unite our team. I think I can do that. If I didn't think I could do that, I wouldn't run. Let's bring in CNN national correspondent Kristen Holmes. Kristen, the kind of evolution of the former president on this endorsement was fascinating, given how he toyed with uh, I think he liked the public attention about being potentially speaker all week. How did this actually come to be? Yeah, Phil and Erica, I mean, look, there's one thing that Donald Trump is, and it is the master of his own narrative. He likes the media attention. He likes the publicity. And he's also an agent of chaos. I was told that when he gave an interview to Fox yesterday, where he essentially said that he wanted to go to Capitol Hill and that he would be willing to serve as interim speaker, that many in his team didn't even know he was doing that. So, again, level of chaos here. And he doesn't even mention that he would have to actually be elected, which goes to show you the level of seriousness that he actually had. And we were told 
told by members of his team that he was never really considering serving as interim speaker, but was really getting out there. Now, I was also told that some GOP lawmakers were starting to express concern about Trump's outward toying with this idea of serving as interim speaker, particularly that it might hurt Jim Jordan, who has been a close ally of Donald Trump's. So late last night, Trump did come out and endorse Jordan, saying he is strong on crime, borders, our military vets, and Second Amendment. Jim, his wife, Polly, and family are outstanding. He will be a great Speaker of the House and has my complete and total endorsement. But as you said, Phil, I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see how that endorsement plays out, particularly with moderates on the Hill. However, one thing that really complicates all of this, as you know, is the fact that he is leading by such a huge margin in the race, in the primary to be the GOP nominee. So that's going to complicate things for those moderates who possibly don't want to get behind Jim Jordan, but also might not want to cross Donald Trump at this time. Yes, a lot to consider there. Kristen, appreciate the reporting. Thank you. Uh, joining us now to discuss CNN political analyst Natasha Alfer, the host of Early Start as well. Casey Hunt is with us. As we look at where everything stands this morning, this, this reporting overnight, when, once we got this endorsement overnight, I think it begs the question, uh, Casey, and we'll start with you, how much will this move the needle? Uh, I think it, <clears throat> excuse me, Erica, I think it moves the, the, uh, the needle significantly. And here's why. There are, there are a couple pieces here. The first one being that Donald Trump has incredible sway among the House Republican Conference. They listen very closely to what he says. He's got a lot of loyalists there, much more so than the Senate, although, you know, that there are more Trump loyalists there now. Uh, when he was president, you know, a single Trump tweet could send the House, you know, spinning out, basically. And that reality still exists. He has, frankly, done more on, on that score uh, to, to lock down support among the House GOP conference. So uh, from this from this perspective, it, it, it says to me it's going to be much harder for a Steve Scalise to get to 218 votes needed to be speaker because a lot of those people are going to listen to Donald Trump uh, and back Jim Jordan. Now, the second piece of this is those moderates um, that Kristen was talking about. And they are a very critical block, but there's a key difference between the moderates and the hardliners. The moderates think governing is important and their interests are not around a prolonged vacancy here with the speakership. They've not been as willing, because they care about governance, uh, to blow up everything in order to get what they want. Um, and so I think it's much more likely that you see them work behind the scenes to figure out how to work with this uh, than to openly revolt against it. Yeah, uh, Natasha, Casey hits at the key point. There are enough moderates or frontline Republicans to shift a dynamic in this race, to keep Jim Jordan from the requisite number of votes he needs, to keep anybody from those votes. That's been the case over the course of about a decade and a half in this Republican conference, and always the moderates end up stepping back. Um, if you want to know how Republicans writ large, for the most part, besides kind of the really diehard Trump folks, felt about all of the talk about Trump and Speaker, I want to play something from Garrett Graves, who's a top ally, a former ally of <laughs> Speaker Kevin McCarthy, um, last night with our colleague Caitlin Collins. He's claiming tonight that he could actually take the job as House Speaker on a short-term basis. Do you believe that that can happen? Uh, you know, look, there's a part of me that um, just just 
um, sitting down and buying tickets to watch the chaos um, would be uh, would be incredibly entertaining to see what the Democrats just created. Um, but in in a, I guess more serious fashion, uh, look, my focus is on restoring functionality and stability. Uh, my guess is just based upon precedent that the next Speaker of the House is going to be a a member of the House of Representatives. So for context, shortly thereafter, Trump endorsed and the idea, which was never actually real, of him becoming speaker went away. But I want to figure out a way to bottle and sell that sigh from Garrett Graves, because I think that encapsulates what a lot of members feel, but maybe don't want to say. I love the deep sigh, the deep groan. But also, did you catch the little dig at Democrats, right? Democrats caused this a very convenient overlooking of the fact that this all came from, you know, the House Freedom Caucus and, and Matt Gates. Um, I think what's interesting about this is that, you know, we move on so quickly to who is about to fill this seat, but the majority of Republicans supported Kevin McCarthy, right? So this is really about a small minority having outsized power because they were able to manipulate the rules. Um, I feel that there are certain moderates who, who don't want to be associated with Trump and Jim Jordan's close relationship with Trump him, um, you know, leading the charge against the Joe Biden impeachment, all of these things make him a divisive figure. And so whether or not he should be the one to actually uh, to govern and not sort of take that speaker seat and make it more of a circus, that is yet to be determined. You know, he's out there saying, look, I'm the one who can bring everybody together. I can unite everyone, Casey. But it does beg this question of who else could break through, right? Who could you get, Casey, to break through that could actually move things to that lane of, hey, let's do some governing here. Let's not just let a small group of very, very vocal folks run everything. I, look, I'll just say, I think there is zero evidence to support the idea that House Republicans are not willing to go along with whatever Donald Trump wants. It's just, there's no evidence. We've seen over and over and over again, and we've talked so many times over, you know, obviously Biden's been president for a couple of years now, but this conversation has somehow continued about, well, aren't Republicans going to break with Trump? You know, he's been indicted again, been indicted again. Aren't they going to break with Trump? And the answer is continually always no. And these House Republicans, you know, the majority of them answer to districts, to constituents in districts, um, who are the ones that are sticking with Donald Trump in these polls. And I just think that that's the reality that you're going to see manifested here. And I think in terms of the speaker's race and your specific question, Erica, I just don't see someone has to get to 218 votes. And with Trump endorsing Jim Jordan, it's going to be a lot harder to convince people not to back Jim Jordan over the objections of Donald Trump, especially because the votes in conference, right, are, are private. First, they have to go inside themselves. They have to they take their own vote behind closed doors, but it's a secret ballot, and that, that'll pick you know who the conference officially wants. Then this vote has to be public on the floor. So anybody that votes against Jim Jordan is now officially crossing Donald Trump, which we know that most of these members are just terrified of doing. It's a, it's a great point, um, and almost certainly the reality with the usual caveat that hey, there are enough members to do something different if they want to. They have not proven willing to do that for the better part of the last seven years. Um, last question before we go, taking a step back, the House being paralyzed like this, the Republican conference being where it is, a government funding deadline hanging in the balance, Ukraine aid hanging in the balance. What do you think this says about kind of the direction of things in politics right now? I mean, I think that as the American people watch this, there's this sense of being overwhelmed by the paralysis, right? And it gets to a point where you wonder um, whether it's you can just sort of blame one party. I think there's this sense of apathy because people feel like 
you tell us to go out to the polls, you tell us to show up in numbers, and then you tell us about what you can't get done, whether you're talking about the executive branch or you're talking about the legislative branch. And so as we look at election 2024, I hope that politicians from both sides take nothing for granted because there are a lot of people who feel like just staying home at this point as they look at the chaos that's playing out on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I think you see that in the polling, regardless of who they support, that there's just like a general malaise right now. Um, Natasha, Casey, thanks, guys. Appreciate it, as always. Thanks, guys. A new report says that former President Trump allegedly shared sensitive information about U.S. nuclear submarines with an Australian billionaire. What the special counsel has learned. And this just in, Iranian peace activist Nargiz Mohammadi has been named the recipient of the 2023 Nobel Peace Prize. Her name has become synonymous with the fight for human rights in Iran. And it's important to know she's currently in prison has been arrested 13 times now for her tireless efforts on women's rights, opposition to the death penalty, and solitary confinement, something she herself has endured for weeks at a time. We'll have more of her story ahead. New reporting about Donald Trump's alleged mishandling of classified information. ABC News is now reporting that months after leaving the White House, Trump allegedly shared sensitive information about U.S. nuclear submarines with an Australian billionaire, a man named Anthony Pratt. This happened at Mar-a-Lago in April of 2021. Now, according to the reporting, an excited Trump, leaning toward Pratt as if to be discreet, told Pratt the supposed exact number of nuclear warheads U.S. submarines routinely carry and exactly how close they supposedly can get to a Russian submarine without being detected. Pratt later described Trump's remarks to six journalists, 11 employees, 10 Australian officials, and three former Australian prime ministers. Uh, CNN has confirmed that federal investigators have interviewed Pratt as part of the special counsel's classified documents probe. Pratt is also reportedly on the list of potential witnesses who may testify at a trial. A, a spokesperson for Trump issued this statement in response. These illegal leaks are coming from sources which totally lack proper context and relevant information. President Trump did nothing wrong, has always insisted on truth and transparency, and acted in a proper manner according to the law. So who is this guy that Trump allegedly is spilling classified information to? Anthony Pratt's ties to the former president go back years. Trump even attended the opening of one of Pratt's plants in Ohio and said this. A lot of people don't tell you about Anthony, but I'll tell you about Anthony. He is the most successful man in Australia. He's a great man. And he's my friend, and I appreciate it. CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers joins us now. I, I actually want to start with uh, the Trump team response. There's not an outright denial. There's not anybody saying this is a lie. It's just saying it lacks context. What does that mean? Well, they're also saying these are illegal leaks, right? right. That ten, tends to be what they do. They just focus on the leaks. Uh, it means that they're not really ready to respond yet. They want to see, I think, how prosecutors are going to try to use this information before they worry too much about it because I, I doubt that they'll try to charge this as a separate spillage of classified or national security information. Uh, it's very hard to charge a, a verbal spillage. You know, there's just not the same proof around it this, than if you have documents and you can establish for sure what information was shared. So I think it's more likely, especially late in the day with the trial approaching also, um, to try to use it instead as what's called other bad act evidence. You can put it in, but it's not to prove a separate crime. It's to to prove a pattern of behavior. And based on what we know about this and this reporting, how effective would it be? 
Well, you know, listen, it's it's part of the pile, right? I mean, they're they're trying to establish what he did with all of the national security information that we saw, you know, at Mar-a-Lago. This is another episode of of Trump being a cavalier about information that's important to national security. So they use it as part of a, a pattern of behavior, a lack of mistake in, in keeping that sort of information the way he did. On another case, another indictment uh, on the election interference case, uh, Trump's lawyers are trying to get the case dismissed uh, on the grounds of immunity because he was president. Um, does that have any legal bearing or validity? You know, this is a tough one, actually, because some of the questions are undecided, like whether presidential immunity even applies to criminal prosecution as opposed to a civil action. So anytime you have a litigation issue that's never been decided before, you have some possibility there. I don't think he'll win at the trial court level. The question is, if he takes an appeal before the trial, it goes up to the circuit, it goes up to the Supreme Court, potentially these unknowns. It could take time. In other words, it could push back the trial date. That's kind of the most immediate concern, I think. And depending on that finding, obviously, it could have wide-ranging implications. It could. I mean, it's most relevant to this case because he's alleging that the acts that he took were within his job right. as president. It's harder to do that with the other criminal cases. But this is also the one that looks most likely to go to trial mm-hmm. before the election. So if this one gets kicked, he may not get any of these trials in before the election next year. Jennifer Rogers, thank you. Appreciate it. New overnight, in a major policy shift, the Biden administration says it will restart deporting Venezuelans back to their country. This is part of an effort to curb the record influx of crossings at the southern border. We have more on this new CNN reporting just ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. President Biden has moved to explain why his administration is moving to build more barriers at the U.S.-Mexico border after campaigning explicitly against it. Now, he says he still believes that a wall won't work. Border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. I can't stop that. Do you believe the border wall works? No. Now, top U.S. officials are in Mexico today for annual security talks as Mexico's president says the U.S. is, quote, acting irresponsibly for building new portions of the wall. Meanwhile, in a major policy shift, the Biden administration said yesterday it will start directly deporting Venezuelans back to Venezuela in an effort to curb the record influx of southern border crossings. Cena Jeremy Diamond is live for us at the White House with more. Uh, the decision here, and it's not just a singular decision, it's not happening in a vacuum, but the approach right now on immigration, on the migration surge, Jeremy, what's driving it? Take us behind the scenes here. 
Yeah, I mean, Phil, there's no question that there is a political backdrop as well as a reality at the border. We have watched as uh, over the last month, uh, the highest number of migrant encounters at the southern border this year. And at the same time, complaints not only from Republican lawmakers, but also pressure from big city Democratic mayors about what is happening in their cities, an influx of migrants that they say they simply cannot handle. And so yesterday, the day began with the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas waving more than two dozen different laws in order to begin construction on this new section of border wall. The day ended with that very same Homeland Security Secretary insisting that the Biden administration's policy as it relates to the border wall simply has not changed. In between that, you had the president of the United States uh, seeming to contradict uh, that statement from his Homeland Security Secretary saying that he doesn't believe a border wall is effective. And you had the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, in the middle of all of it, struggling to try and explain this contradiction between a president saying that the border wall is ineffective, that very same president and his administration moving forward uh, with that construction. Uh, instead, what she simply said uh, was that uh, this administration doesn't believe it is an effective use of funds and effectively that their hand was forced by this 2019 appropriations bill that had to be used, funding of which had to be used by the end of this year. And at the same time, you have this decision on Venezuelan migrants just weeks after extending temporary protected status to nearly half a million Venezuelan migrants, the administration beginning uh, to resume those flights of direct de deportation flights from the United States to Venezuela. Jeremy, immigration, obviously a very top of mind issue right now, always a top of mind issue for the people in the building behind you is the economy. It's Jobs Day. We know the president always speaks on Jobs Day. Is there a concern right now inside the White House that their pitch just simply isn't resonating? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been several months now since the administration launched this Bidenomics messaging push to try and turn around those uh, the perception of the economic numbers. We've seen pretty good economic numbers, although some slowdown in job creation in the last uh, couple of months. But the administration believes they are heading into a good place as it relates to the economy itself. What is not hitting is how those numbers are resonating with the American public. Poll after poll shows that there is still a disconnect between the actual state of the economy and how voters actually view that very same economy. Today, we're expected to hear the president uh, address some of this, talking about uh, an unprecedented turnaround in America's manufacturing leadership talking about our strong jobs market thanks to Bidenomics. So they are not abandoning that slogan altogether yet, Phil. Uh, wait and see, uh, perhaps from the White House, to see if they can actually get that to hit with the public. All right, Jeremy Diamond, live for us in the North Lawn. Thanks, bud. Hillary Clinton sitting down for an exclusive interview with CNN's Christiana Amanpour. Her thoughts on a potential speaker, Jim Jordan. Well, I don't know him well. I watched him and, and uh, you know, stared at him for 11 hours while he made stuff up about me. So I don't know him, but I've seen him in action. So what will it mean if he gets the speakership? Hillary Clinton speaking out about the chaos between House Republicans during an exclusive interview with CNN's Christiane Amanpour. Clinton discussed everything from her views on Jim Jordan as a potential speaker to the divide over Ukraine funding. Here's part of that conversation. Here we are in Washington, D.C., amidst another malfunction. Mm -hmm. The whole world is looking at what's happening in the House and the historic ouster of a speaker. Is American democracy in trouble? Yes, absolutely it's in trouble. It was in trouble before this latest incident. Uh, this just uh, makes it abundantly clear to anybody paying attention 
uh, that we have uh, one political party that unfortunately is in absolute hostage situation with its most extreme members. And uh, Kevin McCarthy, who, you know, I have no, uh, you know, relationship with of any kind, but when he actually did the right thing for the country and kept uh, us from going into a government shutdown, he was punished. And he was punished because he worked with Democrats. He worked for the good of the country. He was not continuing to be captive to the far right extremists. So they toppled him. Uh, it was a very small number as you look at uh, the vote. Uh, but now uh, we're you know, reaping the consequences of their misbehavior. So should the Democrats have saved him, so to speak? Should they have voted to keep him in? You know, that was a very um, uh, tough call for the Democratic caucus. But the problem was for them, as I understand it, he was totally untrustworthy by any measure. Uh, he uh, immediately after they did help him keep the government open, as you know, uh, began to blame them for all kinds of, you know, extraneous matters. And at some point, a leader who has lost all credibility uh, in dealing with the opposition, where you want to have an open line of communication, you want to be able to trust his word, um, is going to, uh, you know, ask for their help and not get it. Mm -hmm. It's said that the main contenders for his position are Jim Jordan, who you know very well from Benghazi. Oh, I don't know him well. I watched him and, and uh, you know, stared at him for 11 hours while he made stuff up about me. So I don't know him, but I've seen him in action. So what will it mean if he gets the speakership? Well, I mean, he is one of the principal uh, ringleaders of the circus that's been created in the Republican Party for the last several years. Um, I, I have no inside knowledge about what the Republicans will do, who they will end up voting for. But when do they put the country first? They do not represent a majority of even the Republican Party. Uh, when you look at the extremists in the House, they certainly don't represent a majority of the country. And, you know, somebody has to stand up and say enough. You know, we could have disagreements. I'm all for that. I was in the Senate for eight years. I worked with a lot of Republicans and, you know, opposed them when uh, I didn't agree. But at some point, there needs to be a backlash against the control that this small group of extremists have. And I don't know uh, who will lead that, but uh, let's hope uh, whoever becomes the new speaker will. So the firebrands, as you've said, the eight or however many they are, the minority of the Republicans who've ousted their speaker, have done so also loudly decrying America's support for Ukraine and saying that, no, 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 we care about America first, not about Ukraine. It's not in our best interest. Do you think that's going to continue? President Biden is planning a major speech um, in order to shore up what his administration is doing for the defense of democracy in Ukraine. What is your feeling about this and your advice? Well, I believe that the majority of the Congress on both sides of the aisle still support um, giving aid to Ukraine, helping Ukraine defend itself, understand that Ukraine's fight is our fight, understand that a democracy struggling against an autocracy that is conducting a barbaric uh, invasion and committing crimes against humanity and, and genocide has to be defeated. So I think a majority of the Congress, just like still a majority of the public, is in favor of uh, helping Ukraine. The challenge will be if whoever is elected speaker somehow controls the floor so you can't get a vote. 
So we have a majority, just like we had a majority to keep the government open until, you know, finally McCarthy allowed there to be a vote with Democrats and a big number of uh, Republicans. So there'll have to be an enormous amount of pressure and uh, maneuvering to get that vote because the Senate will vote to continue to fund Ukraine. The Pentagon will be uh, asking to continue to fund Ukraine. They understand the stakes. So the you know, the struggle will be in the House and we'll all have to do everything we can to force a vote, because if we get a vote, Ukraine will be given the aid it needs. And CNN's chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour, joining us now. So, Christiane, in this wide ranging and fascinating interview, let's pick up there with Ukraine, um, where you just left off in that clip. There's also the broader impact, right, of what happens in this country and what that could mean for support from other Western nations specifically for Ukraine. How concerned is she about that? Massively concerned. And you can imagine our conversation was happening as on a split screen, this slaughter of civilians in Ukraine was taking place. The worst single act of random and horrible violence against civilians um, in this war. So it was really uh, coincidentally, terribly coincidentally, well-timed what she was saying. And she was saying that, look, this is in America's interest as well. And we cannot, as a country, do anything that would embolden the kind of people, i.e. Vladimir Putin, who would do that kind of attack. And she also had some very, very sharp words for what she called would-be appeasers uh, in Congress, in the House, and likened them to the America First Brigade during the, the Second World War, um, who were appeasers of, of Hitler. So it was very, very sharply pointed, and she very much backed uh, President Biden's plan to have a speech to convince the nation that this is not just uh, for Ukraine, but it is also for America. Christian, it was fascinating, one, to hear her kind of read on what's transpired on Capitol Hill over the course of the last week or two, but also the idea, which involves some very personal experience for her, about Jim Jordan potentially being the next Speaker of the House. Do you feel like there is a kind of personal feeling about that, or is this more about policy, who he is as a member of the party? Well, I think it's it's really about policy. She obviously didn't go there on the personal, uh, but she laid out exactly what happened during those uh, those hearings. But she has basically said, and 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 a fuller excerpts of this interview will will show her saying that there is an extremist cult that is basically leading this dysfunction, a minority of the Republican Party that she said probably needs some deprogramming. And she basically went on to say that the onus is on the next election, 2024, because I. I asked her about that. I asked her about Trump's challenge. Uh, she fully expects him to be the nominee for the Republican Party, but said that, that he needs to be defeated if American democracy is to survive. And if, as she said, this extremist cult of the Republican Party and, and Trumpism is to be defeated. And we're going to, you set us up perfectly there because we're going to dive a little bit deeper with that after a quick break, Christiane. Stay with us. We're going to have more of your exclusive interview, including some of those comments about this potential Trump-Biden rematch and what it could mean for the country. Also happening today, the trial of disgraced crypto billionaire Sam Bankman-Fried continues after a key witness testified that both he and SBF committed multiple financial crimes. We're going to dig in. Coming up. We're back now with more of Christiane Amanpour's exclusive sit-down interview with Hillary Clinton and her outlook on a potential rematch between Donald Trump and President Joe Biden. So when you look at how to go forward for the country, as you say, 
Is there any area of coalition building that could happen? There are pragmatic Republicans, as you say. Could there be a new, a whole new way of trying to, you know, get legislation going and cross-party governance going by Democrats and certain Republicans forming a coalition? Well, you saw uh, the number of Republicans who voted along with Democrats to keep the government open. So there's clearly a common sense, uh, you know, sane uh, part of the Republican caucus in the House. Um, but I think they are intimidated. Uh, they um, oftentimes, you know, say and do things which they know better than to say or do. And it will require us defeating those most extreme measures mm -hmm. uh, and the people who promote them in order to try to get to some common ground where people can again work together. That's the way it used to be. I mean, we had very strong partisans in both parties in the past, uh, and we had very bitter battles over all kinds of things, gun control and climate change and the economy and taxes. But there wasn't this little tail of extremism waving, you know, wagging the dog of the uh, Republican Party as it is today. Mm -hmm. And sadly, so many of those extremists, those mega extremists, um, take their marching orders from Donald Trump, who has no credibility left by any measure. He's only in it for himself. He's now defending himself in civil actions and criminal actions. And when do they break with him? You know, because at some point, you know, maybe there needs to be a formal deprogramming of the cult members, but something needs to happen. And how do you do that? Because you said you have to defeat them by defeating their leader. Their leader right. is Donald Trump. Even you have said that you expect him to be the Republican nominee. How does this change at all? At this point, I think, sadly, he will still likely be the nominee, and we have to defeat him. And we have to defeat those who are the election deniers, as we did in 2020 and 2022. Um, and we have to you know, just be smarter about how we are trying to uh, empower the right people inside the Republican Party. You know, Nancy Pelosi had a majority of five votes when she was speaker. Kevin McCarthy had a majority of five votes. Nancy Pelosi passed consequential legislation. And she clearly had members within her caucus who, you know, ranged across a spectrum of political beliefs and ideology. And she kept everybody together and she kept everybody focused on the future. Mm -hmm. He couldn't do that. And so he paid a price. But more importantly, the country paid a price. And so when you see another matchup between potentially Trump and President Biden, what goes through your mind and particularly how do you process that this person who defeated you back in 2016 is still at it, given all that you've said, 91 indictments, you know, civil fraud, sexual transgressions, according to the courts? How, how is this still happening? It's the classic tale of uh, an authoritarian uh, populist uh, who really has a grip on the emotional, psychological uh, needs and desires of a portion of the uh, population. And the base of the Republican Party, for whatever combination of reasons, and it is emotional and psychological, um, sees in him someone who speaks for them. And they are determined that they will continue to vote for him, attend his rallies, wear his merchandise, because for whatever reason, 
he and his you know, very negative, uh, nasty form of politics resonates with them. Maybe they don't like migrants. Maybe they don't like gay people or black people or the woman who got the promotion at work they didn't get. Whatever the reason, you know, Make America Great Again was a bid uh, for nostalgia to return to a place where, you know, people could be in charge of their lives, feel empowered, say what they want, insult whoever came in their way. And that was really attractive to um, a significant portion of the Republican base. Uh, so it is like a cult. And somebody has to break, the, uh, you know, <laughs> break that momentum. And that's why I believe Joe Biden will defeat him. And hopefully then that will be the end and the fever will break. And then uh, Republicans can try to get back to, you know, fighting about issues among themselves and electing people who are at least, you know, responsible and accountable. Are you concerned that a third party candidate on the Democratic side could thwart Joe Biden's chances? I am always concerned about a third party. That's what happened to me, as uh, we all can recall, and uh, helped by a lot of other forces. And that could happen again this time. Uh, so, of course, I worry about uh, anyone who might take votes away from uh, President Biden, because, you know, I'm in the camp, Christiane, that says, why do you actually hire a politician? You know, what is it you want? And what I want is somebody who can get the job done. And Biden has done an amazing job by any measure. You know, people have talked about infrastructure forever. He passed the bill. People have talked about losing advanced manufacturing to China. He passed the bill. People have talked about getting clean energy actually to produce even more and more jobs. He passed the bill negotiating for drug prices, all of these things which many of us have tried to get done in you know, the Senate and beyond, he's gotten done. And it's going to change Americans' lives for the better, and it's going to enhance and grow our economy. And when people say, well, I don't know, pay attention, please. Pay attention to what he's gotten accomplished. But if you don't want to be for him on the merits the way I am, be for him because the alternative could end our democracy. And I don't say that lightly. Our chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour, is back with us now. Christiane, there's a lot that I actually want to discuss with you about that entire interview. But the one thing I was struck by in what we just heard was the idea that if Biden wins in 2024, that's the moment where the fever breaks. I've heard some iteration of that now for seven or eight years from Democrats. Do you think she really believes it? Yeah, I think she really believes it. But more importantly, she really believes it has to happen in order to save America's democracy. As we started, I asked her, is American democracy in trouble? And she said, yes, no thoughts, no hesitation, no nothing. It's in trouble. And that's a problem for this country. And it's a problem for the rest of the world that looks to America for its democratic leadership. So it's a big deal what's happening. And, and we see across the world the ripple effects of the dysfunction that can, continues in this city. Um, it is fascinating. It's such an important interview. Um, I do want to get your take, though, on we learned just uh, almost two hours ago the Nobel Peace Prize winner this year was announced, Narges Mohammadi, and specifically was called out for her fight against the oppression of women in Iran and her fight to promote human rights and freedom for all. For people who may not be familiar with her, she is currently jailed. Can you just paint a picture of why she would be awarded this prize. Why it is so important to recognize her in this moment. 
Well, you can imagine I'm, I'm smiling very broadly. We cover human rights, women's rights in Iran very, very deeply. She is the second Iranian and the second Iranian woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize in the last 20 years. It's an amazing recognition for their human rights work. She is jailed. She's an activist. She's a journalist. She's been in and out, Nargez Mohammadi, for a long time. She's currently serving another long sentence. And in the wake of what happened to Masa Amini, as we remember a year ago now, uh, killed in the hands of Iran. Iran's morality police, the world's attention has been on Iran and on women around the world. So this is a really huge moment. And just to say, my conversation with Hillary Clinton was at Georgetown at the Institute for Women, Peace and Security that she supports. And it's about putting women's uh, you know, rights and their activism and their presence equally in the public space. So it all makes a huge amount of sense. Yeah, it really does. Christiane, so appreciate you being up early with us this morning. And of course, uh, folks at home can catch that full interview Monday, 1 p.m. Eastern, yeah. CNN International. Thanks, Christiane. By happening today, an update on negotiations as the auto worker strike enters its fourth week while the UAW president just invoked the bachelorette in a tweet. And the worst losing streak in Chicago Bears history coming to an end last night, the same day the sports world said goodbye to the ultimate bear, the legendary Dick Butkus. That's just ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. For the first time in 346 days, I mean, but who's counting? The Chicago Bears have managed to... Packers fans are counting. <laughs> There's that. So are Bears fans. There's probably. that. And Bears fans. Bears fans definitely counting. The good news is they can now throw a W. Why? In the most important column. They won. they have a notch. They won. They have a notch in the win column. Notch in the win column. The Bears, it had been rough for a little while. It had been rough for a little while. They had lost a franchise record 14 straight heading into last night's game against the Washington Commanders. Also not exactly a thriving franchise at the moment, but the streak... Finally, over receiver DJ Moore leading the way, catching eight passes from Justin Fields with three of them for touchdowns. Moore would finish with 230 yards receiving. If the Bears win 40 to 20, Justin Fields, Ohio State Buckeye. Oh, there we go. Uh, before the game, the team's honored football Hall of Famer Dick Buckus, who passed away earlier in the day. He was considered one of the greatest defensive players in league history making the Pro Bowl in eight of his nine seasons before a knee injury forced him to retire at the age of 31. Buckus enjoyed a long second career as a sports broadcaster, actor, and pitchman. Dick Buckus, a legend, was 80 years old. CNN This Morning continues right now. Former President Donald Trump has endorsed Congressman Jim Jordan for Speaker of the House. Jim Jordan knew more about what Donald Trump had planned than any other member. Him becoming speaker would basically be the icing on the cake of this is Donald Trump's party. There is just so much uncertainty about who their next speaker is going to be. Trump shared potentially sensitive information about nuclear submarines with a Mar-a-Lago club member. The pattern of Trump being loose with sensitive information and the government's secrets. The relevance here is to intent. I think this could be golden evidence for prosecutors. 
Biden administration will restart deporting Venezuelans to help curb the influx of migrant crossings. There is real urgency around this, but he needs to be seen as doing something. Time is really the major hurdle here. Good Friday morning, everyone. Erica Hill is with me. Poppy is off today. It is Friday, but if you are a House Republican, you have a busy, busy weekend ahead trying to figure out, yeah. well, I don't know, how to get the House back into session and operate. Kind of an important thing, thing to figure out. I've heard it's important. Yep. Trying to figure out who the Speaker is. And new this morning, Donald Trump is taking himself out of the race for House Speaker. To be clear, never really in it. But he is giving Jim Jordan his, quote, complete and total endorsement as House Republicans scramble to replace Kevin McCarthy with just weeks left to prevent a government shutdown. The former president had been floating the idea of being speaker himself temporarily, even though he's embroiled in a civil fraud trial and four different felony criminal cases while also running for president. So looking ahead here, the House GOP conference is set to meet on Monday as they race to pick their new leader. They'll hear from candidates Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise during a forum on Tuesday. An internal election is expected Wednesday, and we could potentially see the House vote on a new speaker that same day if... And this is the if there's a candidate who can unify enough Republicans. It is a tall task, a very important one. They, of course, need to win support from both moderates and those hardliners who voted McCarthy out. Jordan telling CNN he believes he's the guy who can do it. How are you going to get them in line if you were to become the speaker? I mean, those, those, I disagree with, you know, what, what took place. But those guys are friends of mine. And, and uh, you know, I think... That's the that's the message I've been talking to my colleagues about is who can who can bring the eight in, in, into the on, you know, part of the team who can unite our team. I think I can do that. If I didn't think I could do that, I wouldn't run. Now we have team coverage following all the elements of this story. Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill. But let's start with CNN national correspondent Kristen Holmes. Uh, the endorsement last night came very late after floating a lot of different possibilities, none of which were tethered to reality in terms of his own role in the speaker's race. But the endorsement matters. How did he, how did he get here? Yeah, Phil and Erica, I mean, it came after an absolutely chaotic day of Donald Trump inserting himself into an already tumultuous situation with the Republican caucus on the Hill and turning it into a circus. He was floating the idea to members on the Hill that he was going to come up and speak to the fractured party. He did an interview in which he said he'd be willing to serve as interim speaker. An interview that even some of his advisors didn't know he was doing, the same advisors who were telling reporters for several days that Donald Trump not in any way was taking this speakership floating situation seriously at all, that he was focused only on running for president. And of course, this is true Donald Trump fashion. So then we see this endorsement come for Jim Jordan just after midnight, where Trump says he is strong on crime, borders, our military vets, and Second Amendment. Jim, his wife Polly, and family are outstanding. He will be a great speaker of the House and has my complete and total endorsement. Now, a couple of things. I was told that some GOP lawmakers were expressing concern of Trump outwardly flirting with this idea of being interim speaker, that that would ultimately hurt Jim Jordan the longer he was doing that. Uh, so that might have led to some of this endorsement quicker. Uh, the other thing to point out here is that it's not really surprising that Trump backed Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is a staunch MAGA supporter. He has been leading these investigations into President Biden. And it's somebody who has really stood by the former president through pretty much everything, been one of his biggest defenders. He also has endorsed Trump in 2024, something that Steve Scalise has not done. Yeah. 
an important note there. Um, so, Lauren, you asked Jim Jordan specifically how he thought he could unite them. He didn't give you a real answer on that in terms of specifics, but I wonder if he's able to unite more folks now simply because of this Trump endorsement. Well, there's a couple things to keep in mind when it comes to Jim Jordan. One of them is the Trump endorsement likely only helps him with conservatives and members of the House Freedom Caucus that likely he already could have locked up at this point. Really, Jim Jordan's difficulty and the path ahead for him is going to be whether or not he can lock down moderate support, whether he can get the support and backing of some of those Republicans who are running in Biden one districts, whether he can convince them that he's the right man for the job. Because as Kristen was laying out, this is a guy on Capitol Hill who has led every investigation into Joe Biden, who has also been at the forefront of defending Donald Trump at moments when other members in the Republican Party would maybe wish that Republicans would take a step back and let Donald Trump go his own way. So that is one of the key questions. Behind the scenes, Jim Jordan's argument to some of those members is, we need to unite in this moment, and I'm the guy who knows the rebels and can convince them to come with us as we move forward. He also argues he has an effective messaging strategy. He is someone who's on Fox News. He is someone who has a clear direction of where he thinks the party should be going, something that I think some Republicans wonder if Kevin McCarthy was as effective at. So that is his argument. Whether or not he can sell those moderates or McCarthy allies remains another question. Yeah. Erica, Phil. The critical question at that. Kristen Holmes, Lauren Fox, great reporting. Thank you. New reporting about Donald Trump's alleged mishandling of classified information this morning. ABC News is reporting months after he left the White House, Trump allegedly shared sensitive information about U.S. nuclear submarines with an Australian billionaire, a man named Anthony Pratt. Uh, the reporting is that this happened at Mar-a-Lago in April of 2021, in which an excited Trump, leaning toward Pratt as if to be discreet, told Pratt the supposed exact number of nuclear warheads U.S. submarines routinely carry and exactly how close they can supposedly get to a Russian submarine without being detected. Pratt later described Trump's remarks to six journalists, 11 employees, 10 Australian officials and three former Australian prime ministers. CNN has confirmed that federal investigators have interviewed Pratt as part of the special counsel's classified documents probe. Pratt is also reportedly on the list of potential witnesses who may testify at trial. A spokesperson for Trump issued this statement in response, quote, these illegal leaks are coming from sources which totally lack proper context and relevant information. President Trump did nothing wrong, has always insisted on truth and transparency and acted in a proper manner according to the law. So who is the guy that Trump was allegedly spilling classified information to? Well, Anthony Pratt's ties to the former president go back years. Trump even attended the opening of one of Pratt's plants in Ohio. He said this. A lot of people don't tell you about Anthony, but I'll tell you about Anthony. He is the most successful man in Australia. He's a great man and he's my friend and I appreciate it. Joining us now, CNN senior law enforcement analyst and former FBI Dep deputy director, Andrew McCabe. Uh, thanks for coming in. The first thing I want to try and understand, the level of sensitivity of this information. Is this a national security risk? How big of a deal is this? Well, Phil, it's absolutely a national security risk. There is very little information in our federal government that we protect 
more seriously than nuclear weapons national defense information. And just as an indicator of that, as most people know, a sitting president, not, of course, a former president, but a sitting president has the ability to declassify most top secret classified data uh, at his discretion. This is one of those rare categories of information, nuclear weapons material, uh, that is classified not by presidential order, but by statute. So the president himself or herself cannot declassify this uh, information at their own at their own discretion. It is very heart of the most sensitive material that we have to protect in our in our federal government. I found it interesting, too, especially when you put this information in that context, just how sensitive it is. Joe Hockey, the former Australian ambassador to the U.S., downplaying the reporting, telling CNN, and I'm quoting here, that this was a joint program. Similarly, we share weapons technology. If the conversations between Trump and Pratt is as reported, there's been nothing said that we all did not know. Downplaying it there that maybe they knew, but the reality is um, a, a private citizen likely should not know and certainly should not share. Well, that's right, Erica. You know, the former ambassador is certainly correct in terms of his uh, his description of how close we are with our Australian colleagues. They are one of our five eyes partners or our closest uh, intelligence uh, partnerships uh, around the globe. However, protecting national security information is not based on making kind of game time, do-it-yourself decisions when you're talking to your buddy at Mar-a-Lago. You have to, You, we are all obligated to protect that information all the time. And that means complying with the very clear uh, legal regime, the laws that surround how you can discuss information, who you can discuss it to, where this can take place, which of course, in this case, would only be in a sensitive compartmented information facility, a SCIF. So yes, we are very close to the Australians, Maybe this person or others knew of this information, but that does not make it lawful or a good idea to share that information, certainly somewhere like Mar-a-Lago. You know, the first question I had is, given the, the gravity of this, at least in terms of how it appears, why would it not be in the indictment? It's not. Yeah, that's a good question, Phil. So first of all, let's remember there's already 41 counts in that indictment. So we're, there's, there's plenty for the prosecutors to work with. Um, this would be a really interesting charge because this would be the first charge of dissemination, not just unlawful retention of national defense information, but he could potentially be charged with disseminating national inf defense information to a foreign national, which carries very serious penalties. However, in this case, what you have is a few people's recollections of what the president may or may not have said. He undoubtedly would dispute that. So there may be underlying evidentiary issues that make this not the strongest uh, 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 issue to bring uh, as, a, as an independent charge. However, I'm absolutely confident prosecutors will use this exchange with Mr. Pratt. They'll enter this as evidence of the president's intent and his habit, his pattern of treating national defense information incredibly recklessly. It will ultimately be very damaging at trial against the president. Okay. Andrew McCabe, appreciate your time as always. Thank you. Thanks. New strikes overnight in Ukraine just hours after one of the deadliest attacks against civilians since the start of this war, the death toll on a residential village now rising to 52. CNN is live on the ground. Plus, new body camera footage just released showing the arrest of the suspect and rapper Tupac Shakur's 1996 murder. We're going to show it to you. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
happening overnight. Russian missiles striking at least three residential buildings in Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, killing a 10-year-old boy and his grandmother. At least 27 others were injured. Ukrainian officials say Russia launched a massive drone attack overnight, damaging port infrastructure as well as a grain silo on the Danube River. And the death toll rising this morning in the eastern region of Kupiansk, where officials say now 52 people were killed yesterday. That's where CNN's Fred Plykin joins us. He is live for us this morning. Fred, your descriptions yesterday were just heartbreaking, horrific. What more are you seeing today? Hi there, Erica. Well, well, first of all, that missile that hit Kharkiv today is the same kind of missile that hit this building yesterday. And I can show you here the aftermath of what's going on. The authorities here, uh, unfortunately, very early on realized that they weren't going to find any survivors here in this building. So as you can see, this has gone from being a search and rescue to a recovery to now essentially a cleanup operation that's going on on the ground here. But you're absolutely right. When we got here last night, shortly after all this took place, it was absolute carnage. Here's what we witnessed. Utter destruction and chaos after the massive explosion. As night fell, bodies still strewn across the area as search and rescue crews scoured the debris. This man weeping in front of a body bag, too shaken to talk to us. We learned his name is Sergei and the deceased was his wife. As you can see, this building was completely annihilated when it was hit by the missile. The Ukrainians are saying that this was an Iskander missile launched by the Russians. That is a very heavy missile uh, that is normally used to destroy large troop formations or even armored vehicles. And as you can see, it completely devastated this building right here. The Ukrainians say more than 50 people were killed. It's very difficult for them to identify some of the bodies because they are in such bad shape. They also say what was going on here was an event around a funeral and they say that the people who were attending that event were all local folks there was chaos the chief investigator tells us there was a fire which was extinguished by firefighters of course evacuation measures were taken to get people out of the rubble Obviously, all of this is still very fresh, and a lot of the search and rescue crews are still very much at work. We can see over there that some of the first responders are still busy sort of doing the forensics on the scene here and also still putting bodies into body bags. There's a lot of them laying around here and a lot of them being taken away by some of these crews here. One of the other things that we can see over there is that obviously this was some sort of recreational area. There still seems to be some sort of playground that was also heavily damaged when the missile hit. Ukraine's president visiting Spain, pinning the blame on Russia. Tragically, because of this inhuman terrorist attack, 50 civilians were killed during a funeral. Russia does this every day in the Kharkiv region, and only air defense can help. But that help will be too late for Sergei's wife and the others killed. The only thing he can do for her now is help the crews lift her body to be taken away. And as you mentioned, Erica, the death toll now stands at 52. We can look once again just the devastation that was brought on uh, by this uh, explosion. And you just heard there also from the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, some of the anger. And one of the things that we can tell you right now, Erica, is that we've already seen a Ukrainian war crimes prosecutor on the ground here already doing their work. Erica. Fred Pikin, appreciate it. Thank you. Well, following one of the deadliest attacks on civilian infrastructure since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the White House says the need for continued U.S. military support to Kyiv is clear as the growing rift over additional funding looms large in the Republican speakership fight. In addition to Ukraine aid, the next House speaker will also inherit critical battles over federal spending, the growing deficit, and the southern border crisis. 
Joining us now is Congresswoman Victoria Sparts, a Republican from Indiana. She's also the first Ukrainian-born member of Congress. Congresswoman, thank you so much for the time. I want to start with where Fred left off from on the ground in Ukraine. Um, you have said you agree with uh, Congressman Jim Jordan's idea that more accountability is needed for Ukraine aid. Would you support somebody in the speaker's race who did not want additional Ukraine aid? Well, listen, I think, you know, we have a different opinions, but uh, I'll be honest with you. I think majority people understand that it's a very serious war. And ultimately, we as a country, you know, we, we force Ukraine to give up nuclear weapons. So it's important for us, you know, that we help, you know, Ukraine, you know, to win that war. But it's also important that, you know, there is a proper oversight, that, that we have a proper strategy and allow actions with this strategy. I hope it's a wake-up call for President Biden and some of the senator to understand that we have to start providing weapons to the military. That is the only way to get now very aggressive dictator to the table. We know we've been playing politics with him for a while and have a serious crisis of governing Washington, D.C. and strategy. On that point, you know, there are just an amendment votes related to U.S. military assistance to Ukraine. Members of your party, I think it's grown by 10, 15, 20, that want to strip it entirely, put an end to it entirely inside the House Republican Conference. How do you thread that needle, given that it seems to be a growing sentiment in your conference, to end it entirely? Well, I think, listen, I mean, this issue been politicized. And I told a lot of Democrats, you're playing politics, not really communicating with Congress effectively, not explaining why it is a national interest of our country, and also, you know, not dealing with domestic issues. These are not mutually exclusive issues. We have to be good on all fronts, and they haven't been doing that. And I think it allows, you know, people get upset, but it also allows Russia to do a lot of propaganda to destabilize, and they're good at propaganda. Don't underestimate them with their hybrid wars. And I think, you know, we are not proactive and not governing. And I think that's the biggest problem and not taking this war seriously. So I hope it's a wake up call also for the administration and the Senate to start dealing more effectively because we have to deal with this very, very serious war. Uh, you, you mentioned not governing. That, that would be a good way to describe the House at this point in time with no speaker. Have you decided it, whether you want to back Jim Jordan, Steve Scalise or somebody else? Well, this is actually a crisis of governing in Congress. This actually has been for very long while, unfortunately, for decades, you know, playing politics and circuses. So at least it brought transparency now to the American people. So hopefully not now under pressure, we'll start doing some good things for the people. You know, and I'm going to look, I said I'm open-minded. I honestly sick and tired of circuses. We have real issues. I want to see who can be the leader to deliver for the people, to be able to do some at least incremental positive change on our our debt situation, which is getting catastrophic and also securing our border. It's extremely important and we need to stop playing politics with people's lives and push on the Senate. And I hope it can be on a bipartisan basis because Senate is so consumed now with elections and doing nothing. Right. I mean, it's really disappointing for me. Does President Trump's, former President Trump's endorsement of Jim Jordan uh, weigh, in, weigh on your calculation at all? Listen, I actually very independent-minded person. I'm looking at the person capabilities and want to see their plan and mission how to achieve. I mean, I really just driven by my own assessment always and very independent thinkers and hold my party accountable as much as the other party. Uh, Congressman, uh, a week or two ago, the time is compressed a little bit at this point, given how crazy things have been. You put out a, a, a very strong statement saying if you did not have a debt commission 
uh, by the end of this year, you would resign. And then uh, we're very critical of leadership. Does that still stand even though there is no longer a Speaker McCarthy? The next Speaker of the House will also have to deliver on that or you will resign. Well, listen, I need to assess if it's worthwhile because I think it's an important issue because the, you, you need to understand next year everyone is going to be doing fundraising and campaigning, and I don't need to be be there talking head, do presentation. You know, if there is something useful, I'm going to do. But listen, we have to start governing, and and if I'm, you know, if I'm not going to be able to deliver, I'm not going to waste time and take time from family and a lot of other issues. But I do care about this country, and I hope next leader will be serious and actually try to find a ways how we can deliver for the people. So I'm very open-minded, and I'll assess the situation. I just mainly wanted people to know what a broken this institution is, and I think we need to do something about it. And I hope on a bipartisan basis, we'll start putting pressure on politicians to start doing something good. All right, Congresswoman Victoria Sparks, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The United Auto Workers strike now entering its fourth week. The economic losses connected to that strike? Got a closer look at those just ahead. And new body camera footage just released showing the arrest of a man suspected of killing rapper Tupac Shakur. What he said to police after they took him into custody. We'll have it next. Today, the president of the United Auto Workers Union is set to speak as the strike enters its fourth week. That union president, Sean Fain, tweeted this picture from The Bachelorette with the big three automakers superimposed as contestants' heads, teasing that one of them would get the rose today. Now, it comes as only about 17% of the union's 150,000 workers are currently striking, while the rest are still working. It's unclear right now if the strike will expand. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz joins us now. Um, Good graphics. What does it mean? So today at 2 p.m., we're expecting to hear from UAW President Sean Fain. This is his signature Facebook Live that he's done for the past couple of weeks. We know that he's going to be giving substantial bargaining updates today between what's happening with the union and the big three. What we don't know is, will he expand any strikes against the big three? We know that General Motors and Ford put new offers on the table this week. But the benchmark for Fain is whether or not there's been significant progress from week to week with the big three and the union. And we know from one of our sources that General Motors and the union has made significant progress on key issues. And that's important because over the last three weeks, General Motors has been struck three times, while the other two, Ford and Stellantis, have been struck twice. Is it enough to avert another targeted strike against General Motors and the rest of the big three? We'll see, but we'll only know at 2 p.m. today. The surprise strategy on a weekly basis, yeah. I think, has been confounding, to, certainly, to the automakers. How much Do we have any sense right now in terms of how much this strike has cost the big three? Yeah. General Motors tells us that in the first two weeks, they lost $200 million. But then a step back, looking at the broader economy and Ford, Stellantis, and GM, estimates put losses at nearly $4 billion. So that is losses to the automakers. That is lost wages. That is losses to dealerships and consumers. But the number $4 billion really encompasses just the first two weeks. Remember, we are already in the third week. There have been additional plants that have been targeted to strike. But we know that General Motors, Ford and Stellantis say that they're all putting record deals on the table, record offers to the big three, but apparently not enough quite yet to avert a strike or expanded targeted strikes. On the wage issue, though, uh, 
it's important to note that folks who are on the picket lines, the 25,000 that are on the picket lines, as well as the more than 3,000 that have been laid off because of the ripple effect, they're eligible for strike pay from the union, but that's only $500 a week. That is not really what their wages normally are. So a good sort of stopgap for now. But these folks, at the end of the day, want to get off the picket lines. We'll see if at 2 p.m. if there's enough progress for any closeness to a deal. Yeah, also a finite amount of money, too, that pot of money that's being it's utilized. It's only $850 yeah. million, dollars, um, and that's running out. This is a fascinating, very important story. You've been doing great work on it. Vanessa Thank Capers, you. thank you. New this morning, Las Vegas police releasing body cam video showing the arrest of Dwayne Kifi D. Davis. He's the man accused of killing rapper Tupac Shakur in 1996. Once Davis and the officer are in the car, they begin talking. Here's part of that conversation. So what they got you for, man? Uh, oh, man. Biggest case in uh, Las Vegas history. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Like recent? September 7th, 1996. Oh, no Wow. That's a long time, that's a long time away. You know what I'm talking about, though? Hmm? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Not a detective quite yet, but yeah. I ain't worried about it, I ain't getting Well, I mean, that's what court's for, right? The six-year-old suspect appeared in court for the first time this week on a charge of murder with a deadly weapon. The judge has delayed his arraignment for at least two weeks. Tupac's murder was the subject of a decades-long investigation. Well, beloved community activist attacked and killed on the streets of Brooklyn right in front of his girlfriend, Ryan Carson's boss, joins us to talk about the man he worked closely with over the last several years. A group of medical students in Chicago going beyond the call of duty to voluntarily treat more than 2,000 migrants living on the streets outside of police stations with their story. A beloved community activist stabbed to death on the streets of New York this week. His name was Ryan Carson. We'll tell you more about what happened, but as we get to that, I do want to warn you that the video you're about to see is disturbing. Police say Carson and his girlfriend were waiting at a Brooklyn bus stop just before 4 in the morning on Monday when a man in a dark hoodie walked past them. The couple, as you see here, then got up to walk home. That is when the suspect kicked mopeds and scooters that were parked on the street and ultimately confronted Carson, asking, what are you looking at? Carson reportedly tried to de-escalate the situation. The suspect, though, at one point, slaps him, pulls a knife, and then when Carson tripped, stabbed him three times, once in the heart. Police have identified the suspect as 18-year-old Brian Dowling, he was arrested yesterday and is now facing charges of murder with depraved indifference and criminal possession of a weapon. Carson, a social justice advocate who spent a decade working with the nonprofit New York Public Interest Research Group, was well known in New York political circles. New York City Mayor Eric Adams remembered him in a post on X writing, quote, Ryan Carson turned his passion into purpose. He advocated tirelessly for others and his giving spirit was a buoy to all. Senate Majority Leader and New York Senator Chuck Schumer called Carson, quote, a rising talent and an extraordinary activist, wrote Ryan Carson, threw himself into everything he did with passion and humanity. Joining us now is the executive director of the New York uh, Public Interest Group and Ryan Carson's boss, Blair Horner. Uh, very sorry for your loss. How are you? How is the staff doing right now? Well, we've sort of, it's, you know, it's brutal. Uh, it's a devastating thing to have happen. Uh, the staff are, you know, we've uh, organized grief counseling. Uh, we're trying as best as we can to sort of make it through the week. 
Uh, and uh, it's, it's tough. It's very tough. This, uh, Ryan was a beloved member of the team, and we're a relatively small not-for-profit, and so people you know, have close uh, personal relationships outside of work. I read, too, he, in describing him, people would mention his big laugh, his big smile, how well-liked he was. He also, having been there for 10 years and, and starting as a student volunteer, these are pivotal moments in a person's development as they're moving into adulthood. That, too, must have really left an impression. Yeah, I'm, you're right. I mean, as a, as a staff member, he, uh, Ryan was known to be you know, hardworking, uh, smart, creative, uh, and paid attention to detail. And at a personal level, he was one of the people that, you know, lit up the room, uh, had a big smile, always very friendly, willing to give the shirt off his back if you needed it. Uh, and his work reflected that. I mean, he was involved in our organization. He was involved in lots of activities outside of our organization. He's a very caring person. He cared about people on an individual basis as well as society at large. You mentioned his work. Um, the, the outpouring of, I think, grief, but also uh, the things people have been saying uh, in the wake of this tragedy, uh, it is very noteworthy. What was, it wor- what, what was it about him, what was it about his work that connected with so many? Well, I, again, I, I think it's just the, uh, the force of his personality. It was hard not to like the guy. I mean, he really was a very much a wonderful person uh, and genuinely cared enough that connected with people. And so he was always willing to do the hard work, uh, and he was always willing to help people out. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, as a human interaction, is the kind of thing that people respond to very positively. Uh, And so given his hard work, his sort of broad scope of interests, and his passion, uh, people reacted very positively to it and loved the guy. And we did, too. Uh, State Assembly member Emily Gallagher told the the Gothamist, quote, I'm absolutely positive he would immediately see this was a person who is suffering from a lack of resources in our community, who probably needs better mental health support, possibly housing, possibly drug support, drug treatment. What he would want to avenge his death is for us to fix how broken this city is. How much of that was a focus for him? I mean, you talk about his passion for the city, for those around him, but also on a broader social level. Uh, Do you believe if there were a similar circumstance he was aware of, he would have, in fact, been talking about the very real needs that need to be met in the city. Well, you know, it's it's very this is a very raw experience for me personally and for everybody who works with us. And so it's you know it's hard to sort of tease out the reactions. Um, obviously anything that can be done in society to make the place a safer uh, place for everyone in terms of their abilities to work their way through school, to get good jobs. Uh, all of those things are important uh, policy issues that should be addressed. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And my guess is that Ryan would have seen uh, this individual uh, as a troubled person. Um, and so, but, you know, from sort of the narrow perspective of where I sit now, I'm more concerned about the colleagues, mm-hmm. his friends, his family, to the extent that I can be helpful yeah. to sort of help people work their way through this terrible cir- uh, circumstance. Yeah, we, we certainly are thinking about you, your team, uh, condolences. Uh, and, and hope that you, know, you guys figure out a way to deal with this, certainly focused on the legacy as well. Blair Horner, we appreciate your time. Thank you. 
A group of medical students are going beyond the call of duty, voluntarily treating migrants in need. They're seeing a range of cases uh, with migrants who have been bused from Texas to Chicago. Many of them have nowhere to sleep but on the floor. Whitney Wild has their story. All right, so it's going to be a busy day. They start early and visit often. Medical students and doctors from the Chicago area treating patients at Chicago police stations, where more than 2,000 migrants live, waiting to move into shelters. To kind of let them know that we will get to them. Everyone, everyone will be seen, but they have to be patient. They spend hours here, all on their own time. This is entirely volunteer run and donation funded. The idea of second year medical student Sarah Izguerdo. I think baby has a current a fever going on right now. It's been overwhelming. Every time I feel that we can scale up and we catch up, the number of people in a police station doubles. Sarah started the mobile migrant health team in May and says she now regularly sees more than 100 people per visit. The team pays for medical supplies to treat patients on the street, over-the-counter medicine, and even prescriptions like antibiotics. Someone that has a migraine that just wants my ibuprofen because she can't afford it. Sarah's mentor, Dr. Evelyn Figueroa, helped her build the project and calls her simply a force. They built this with bubble gum and toothpicks and uh, and been able to just really bring a lot of wonderful services. Sacamos una cita nueva. Sí? Okay. The migrants' journeys to the U.S. are long and dangerous. Sarah says she's seen a range of cases, including women suffering complications from miscarriages. There's sometimes I go home and I can't sleep just because my patients are still here. I'm in a bed. They're on the floor. And then also it's just the worry. Concerns she took to Chicago City Council. We are seeing children who have been cut up by the barbed wire in rivers, sloppily stitched up in Texas, put on a bus by Texas, and then dropped off and deposited into Chicago police stations with their cuts infected. Migrants are pulling into the city in record numbers. The impact of Sarah and her team is immeasurable. I listen to baby's lungs. Sounds good to you. Uh, baby's lungs sound really good. I do think we're saving lives. There have been situations where I go home and I feel good just because I know if we hadn't been there, something really dangerous could have happened. Whitney Wild, CNN, Chicago. Well, the co-founder of the now bankrupt crypto exchange FTX testifying in court that he and Sam Bankman-Fried committed multiple financial crimes. Ben McKenzie was in the room and has interviewed Bankman-Fried in the past. He's going to join us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, he deliberately lied to the world, leading one of the biggest financial fraud cases in American history. That's what federal prosecutors said this week at the start of the criminal trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, founder of the now bankrupt crypto exchange FTX. Yesterday, one of his co-founders FTX, at FTX told prosecutors that both he and Bankman-Fried committed multiple financial crimes. The co-founder's testimony, a crucial component of the government's case. Prosecutors say SBF stole billions and cheated customers out of illegally by illegally diverting massive sums of their money from FTX to his own personal piggy bank of sorts. The 31-year-old has pleaded not guilty to seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. If convicted, SBF, who was once called the richest man under 30, could spend the rest of his life in prison. Our next guest, Ben McKenzie, was in the courtroom yesterday as an observer. He interviewed SBF last July for his New York Times bestselling book, Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino, Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud, and also testified last December at a Senate hearing focused on the collapse of FTX. 
In my opinion, the cryptocurrency industry represents the largest Ponzi scheme in history. In fact, by the time the dust settles, crypto may well represent a fraud at least 10 times bigger than Madoff. Ben McKenzie joins us now. You may also know him as a star of shows like The O.C. and Gotham. So good, good to have you with us. You were actually in court for part of the day yesterday. There is an observer. Take us inside that courtroom, if you would. Well, there's a lot of media interest. Of course, Trump's trial is next door, so yeah. it's, it's, it's getting a little, a little busy downtown. It's a little busy downtown, but a lot of reporters. I was in the overflow room, and there were probably 30 or 40 of us in there watching on a, a closed-circuit monitor. Um, and as you mentioned in the intro, Gary Wong, the co-founder of FTX, uh, testified that Sam Bankman-Fried instructed him to write secret backdoor code, which would basically allow them to steal their customers' money. Uh, borrow uh, the money that was put on FDX, but really have it in Alameda Research, which is Sam's mm -hmm. other company. Um, so it was pretty explosive stuff. And just to be clear, that's not something you're supposed to be doing? You are not supposed <laughs> to do that, no. Even in the Bahamas, I don't think you're supposed to. That's right. I like the, the description of Alameda is like his personal piggy bank. That's not legal. No. And that's why he's where he is to some degree. No, you can't borrow someone's money if they don't know that they're lending it to you. <laughs> that's called stealing. Yeah, that is sort of a technical term. Yeah, um, technical. But yeah, it is, it is fascinating to watch this downfall. And I think so many people were just struck by how quickly it happened. And we heard from you in your testimony there, just the size and the scope of it. But the renewed interest now is this, as this trial is going on, I think reminds people of that. And it also brings up a lot of questions of why, why should I be so invested in this? Mm -hmm. What is the broader concern for Americans as you look at this trial and we look at some of these details coming out just yesterday? Well, I mean, cryptocurrency has really uh, heretofore existed in a more or less unregulated form, right? I mean, FTX was run out of the Bahamas. The biggest crypto exchange is Binance, which says it has no headquarters. Um, so we're really dealing with sort of the wild west of unregulated finance. And as regulators and law enforcement officials sort of, you know, are playing catch up and I think doing a decent job at this point, I think we'll, we'll see more of this to come. Alex Vashensky, another guy that I interviewed in the mm -hmm. book, his uh, fraud trial is set for next year. Uh, the CFTC and SEC have sued Binance. So I think there's more, more, more to come. Um, I have to ask because... Uh we were talking about beforehand, my frustration with Michael Lewis just happening to be profiling this individual in the middle of the biggest financial collapse. The guy doesn't need luck in terms of uh, his past work, which has always been extraordinary. Um, it's been really interesting as his book about Sam Bankman-Fried comes out, um, the critiques of it, how people are viewing it. You wrote a review of this book in uh, Slate, I believe. What, you read the whole thing. What do you, what's your take on it? Well, it's very interesting. Michael Lewis spent a year with Sam Bankman-Fried and seems to believe that he's innocent, um, or at least the charges are, are uh, uh, flawed. I spent one hour with Sam last year, and I thought Sam Bankman-Fried was full of it. Um, Why? He, he couldn't give me straight answers to basic questions. One of the questions was, what does cryptocurrency do? What is one thing that it can do better than anything else that already, <laughs> and he couldn't answer that question. He couldn't answer, give me one crypto project that has any real utility. Uh, the project he named, he happened to own a lot of. I thought that was awfully self-serving. Um, and then at the end of our interview, when he thought the cameras weren't rolling, uh, this was all recorded, um, he started slagging the other 
players in crypto talking trash about, including one of his biggest business partners, Tether. I, I just, it gave me the chills. I thought if this is the, the king of crypto, is this a kingdom of sand? This is not a real business. What are we talking about here? And then sure enough, about you know, three or four months later, it all fell apart. Um, I don't really know what to make of Michael Lewis's book, but let's just say we have very different takes on Sam Bankman-Fried. Something. Really, it's great to have you here this morning. Great to be here. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, can you in. come back? I mean, as yeah. the trial goes on, I Absolutely. just feel like there's yeah. going to be more days like yesterday. It's be my pleasure. Up. I'm going to run down there now, but uh, I'm happy to come back. Yeah. Careful <laughs> of the other trials. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, ben McKenzie, we appreciate it. Thank you. Well, Donald Trump is not running for House Speaker, but he is throwing his weight behind Congressman Jim Jordan. The big question, will the endorsement push the Ohio representative closer to the vote threshold he needs? We're going to dive in next. Good morning, everyone. Let's get started with five things to know for this Friday, October 6th. The race for House Speaker took a surprise turn overnight after saying he would consider the position himself. That was never real. Donald Trump now throwing his support behind Congressman Jim Jordan. Former President Trump reportedly revealing nuclear submarine secrets to an Australian billionaire who apparently shared that information with dozens of others. And President Biden dealing with the fallout over the crisis at the border as Texas Governor Greg Abbott continues to send migrants to non-border cities like New York and Chicago. We're going to talk to Denver's mayor on how his city is addressing the 2,400 migrants who've been bused there since May. Trump and Biden now running neck and neck in a new 2024 poll out this morning. But the former president holds a significant lead when it comes to voters' top issues. And this morning, Hollywood actors are still on strike. So are UAW workers. Will the walkouts impact the September jobs report that comes out just moments from now? This hour of Seen in This Morning starts right now. How are you going to get them in line if you were to become the speaker? I mean, those, those, I disagree with, you know, what, what took place, but those guys are friends of mine. And, and uh, you know, I think that's the, that's the message I've been talking to my colleagues about is who can, who can bring the eight in, in, into the, on, you know, part of the team who can unite our team. I think I can do that. If I didn't think I could do that, I wouldn't run. That was Congressman Jim Jordan making his case to be the next House Speaker, and he just got a huge boost from the former president. Donald Trump making a surprise endorsement just after midnight. He's throwing his complete and total support behind Jordan as House Republicans scramble to pick a new leader with just weeks left to prevent a government shutdown. Armani Raju just spoke to Jordan in a CNN exclusive. Take a listen. You're saying you're a uniter. You're uniter. What is different between you and, and Steve Scalise? I think it's just this race comes down to two questions. I said this yesterday. Uh, who can unite the conference? Who can also unite, I guess, maybe three questions. Who can unite the conference? Who can unite conservative Republicans and, and, and uh, our party around the country? And then who can go tell the country what we're doing and why it's important to them, to their, to their family, to their business, to their community? Um, and look, I like the job I got now. I never wanted to do this job, but someone has to. Um, who can, who can bring the team together and can go communicate to the country, and that's why I'm running. Well, you, what were your conversations like with Trump? Uh, you know, given got, you got his endorsement, and what do you expect him to do to try to get you the votes in this race? Uh, I appreciate the president's endorsement. He's the leader of the party. He's going to be our, our, our presidential nominee, and I think he's going to be our next president, so I appreciate that. Um, but we're focused also on, you know, the key thing is our, our colleagues, and I'm talking with um, 
you know, we got from, from Freedom Caucus to people in the middle to, to committee chairs to Jeff Van Drew, who was Democrat four years ago. We got all kinds of across-the-board support, and we're just going to keep working. And that was Manu just moments ago, uh, working early in the morning, and I think underscoring that Jim Jordan is also working early as he tries to figure out his path forward to the 218 or requisite number of votes he needs that comes after Trump had been floating the idea of being speaker himself, even though he's in the middle of a civil fraud trial and facing four different felony criminal cases. Also, he's running for president. So where do we stand now? What comes next? Jim Jordan out there working early. Motto, too, as you pointed out. Motto is never allowed to sleep, by the way. Let's give you a sense of the calendar, the upcoming calendar. So right now, there's a to meet on Monday uh, in this race to replace Kevin McCarthy. They'll hear from candidates, they'll hear from Jim Jordan, they'll hear from Steve Scalise during a forum. Then on Tuesday, an internal election is expected on Wednesday, and there could be a House vote on that same day if there's a candidate who can unify enough Republicans. But it's not going to be easy here. They need to win support from both moderates and those hardliners who voted out McCarthy. Let's get some insight from two former Republican congressmen who voted to impeach Trump, also voted in a few speaker elections as well, Fred Upton and Adam Kinzinger. Uh, guys, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Uh, Congressman Upton, I, I want to start with you because I've been trying to map out the pathway to 218 or 217, whatever the requisite number is right now, uh, given the dynamics of this conference, which has changed dramatically since uh, you first got there. Do you see a pathway for either Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan at this point? Well, it's going to be really hard. And obviously, and we and Adam and I have been chatting for a long, long time. And we both expected Trump to come out and support a Jordan. So that really was not a surprise. In fact, there's a, I think Trump is actually coming up to the Hill next next week to address the conference to try and get people together. So uh, but it, it clearly puts Jordan in the catbird seat, at least for the first round. But you got to get 218. And the question will be among the moderates, the, the Republican governing uh, council, the old uh, Tuesday group that I helped fo uh, found, Main Street Partnership. Are there going to be 10 or 15 Republicans that say, no, this is not where we need to go? You know, there's 18 Republicans that won in districts that Biden won. They're not going to be very happy with a Jim Jordan uh, uh, speakership. I mean, he he opposed the 21st Century Cures Act. He opposed the CHIPS Act. He's been actually with those eight, I'll call them renegades, uh, in their votes virtually all year long. So th there there's never was a problem for him corralling them and bringing them onto the team. The question will be, where are the moderates going to be? Are, are there going to be enough to say no? And in that case then it probably, you look at McHenry or maybe uh, Tom Cole as a successor. So, Congressman Kinziger, as we look at this, in that, in that exchange that we just played with Jim Jordan and Manu, you know, he talked about uniting the conference. He believes he's the guy, right? He keeps saying he's the guy. What also stood out to me is he said he's basically the communicator here, that he, the other reason he believes he's the right guy for this job, that he can get this done and bring people together, is because he can tell the country, in his words, what we're doing and why it's so important. How important is that communication part of it? If he's out there on TV more, if he's speaking more to voters, is there the chance, is that the hope that then he also will take some of that, that they will take rather some of that back to their representatives and he'll hear it from voters? Well, look, I, yeah, I mean, look, communication is really important for a speaker. Uh, now, I'm, I'm kind of old school. I still think the speaker's job should be just to be the speaker of the House and not to be the leader of a certain party. Uh, but it is important. Now, 
Jim Jordan's not a great communicator. He's great on Fox News because he throws out all kinds of bombs, right? I don't think he'd be good with a crowd that, frankly, is in the middle unless they don't wear suit jackets also, and he can relate to them on that level. Um, and so that's going to be an interesting thing. The reason I think that Jim Jordan can unite the caucus better is not because he's any better. I think he's far worse is because the incentive structure is such that it, these eight renegades that threw out the current speaker, Kevin McCarthy, are probably going to get their way because they're willing to go to the edge of the earth. They're willing to withhold their votes to get rid of Kevin McCarthy. The question is, are there 10 on the other side willing to play that same game to say, you know, hell no, will I ever vote for Jim Jordan? If there are, Jim Jordan will never be speaker. And we may actually get to a consensus speaker, which would be better for the country. But unless that happens, I just I'm not convinced there are those numbers. Now, look at Nancy Mace. By the way, she'll be on CNN, I'm sure, at some point today. Um, she voted against Kevin McCarthy because she said he was not pro women enough. She has to immediately today, I would assume, come out against Jim Jordan and say, and no chance will she ever vote for Jim Jordan. Now, she was just on Bannon's podcast, so I doubt that happens, but this will be interesting to watch. Congressman Upton, to uh, Congressman Kinzinger's point, this has always been the case inside the conference, particularly over the course of the last four or five years. The moderate members, the problem solvers group members, the Main Street Caucus group members always had the numbers to do the same exact things that we saw from Gates and his crew, and they've never done it. So why would this time be any different? Well, it's it's crunch time now. I mean, it, it really is. So it's 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 either make a statement now and, and say, you know, maybe you do, as, as Adam said, uh, you look at a coalition, although that's, you know, that, that's a bunch of ballots uh, down the line. That's uh, next week or, the, or, or actually two weeks down the, the line if there's a, a real gridlock here. But I mean, we'll see. We'll just see. I mean, we'll know. I mean, I think members will be coming out with statements uh, pretty soon, whether they can accept Jim Jordan, assuming that he does have the nod that things don't collapse over the weekend. Uh, and, and Steve Scalise, uh, you know, he had a magnificent challenge. I mean, but he, it's pretty hard to get above 100 votes and he needs 113. It's, um, a, it's a real divided co conference, uh, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, before we let you both go, Congressman Kinzinger, I do want to get your take on the reporting overnight. Um, ABC reporting that former President Trump in April of 2021, when he was out of office at Mar-a-Lago, told this Australian billionaire, um, discuss very sensitive information about U.S. nuclear subs, how close they could get uh, to Russia without being detected. Annie McCabe was just putting in context for us earlier this morning about the level of sensitivity of this information in particular and why it could be so damaging. From your perspective, where is your head at this morning when you hear this latest reporting? Yeah, this is really traitorous activity. This is a complete betrayal of the, the trust the United States of America puts in U.S. president. You know, let's think about the fact that Fred and I in Congress allocated billions of dollars into these programs to save American lives and ensure that we could, you know, operate the seas and, and control the freedom of navigation in a way that the American people expect. For Donald Trump to go say these secrets, he's literally waste, he's, he's putting American lives in jeopardy. He's putting American defense strategy in jeopardy, and he's wasting billions of dollars because now we will have to change those secrets, obviously, if they get out. This is unforgivable, but this is just par for the course for Donald Trump. And you know, anybody that supports him and defends him in this cannot call themselves, you know, a China hawk in the same breath. 
Former Congressman Fred Upton, Adam Kinzinger, always good to have you both with us. Thank you. In a major policy shift, the Biden administration says it will now begin deporting Venezuelans back to their country, part of efforts to curb the record influx of crossings at the southern border. And you see in reporting is just ahead. And it's not just New York and Chicago. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is also busing migrants to Denver. Denver Mayor Mike Johnson joins us next on how he's addressing this. President Biden is explaining why his administration is moving to build more barriers at the U.S.-Mexico border after explicitly campaigning against it. He says he also still believes that a wall won't work. Border wall, when money was appropriated for the border wall, I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. I can't stop that. Do you believe the border wall works? No. The top U.S. officials were in Mexico this week for annual security talks as Mexico's president says the U.S., quote, is acting irresponsibly for building a new wall. Meanwhile, in a major policy shift, the Biden administration says it will restart directly deporting Venezuelans back to their homeland in an effort to curb the record influx of southern border crossings. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is live in Washington, D.C. with more. Um, The scale of the policy changes, they seem like they're one-offs. They're not. They're all coming together. But do they actually create a potential solution here? Well, they're all coming together in an attempt to deter migrants from continuing to come to the U.S.-Mexico border. So to your point, for years, the U.S. has been unable or hasn't been carrying out regular deportations to Venezuela. That changes this week. And here's why that's important. Venezuelans make up a larger share of border crossers than they have in previous years. If you look at the numbers, just in August, for example, there was over 30,000 migrants from Venezuela who were encountered by border authorities. Now, that what often happens is that they are processed by authorities and then they're released into the U.S. as they go through their immigration court proceedings. That was really one of the few options that the administration had. And in some cases, they do send them back to Mexico. And the reason is because there are over 7 million people who have fled Venezuela because of economic and political turmoil there. Just to give you a bit of context on that, Phil, that outpaces the number of people who have fled Ukraine, where there is an active war. So this is a, a regional issue and one the administration has been grappling with at the border. And now they're making the decision that they're going to have to send some back to Venezuela or try to over the next weeks to try to make a dent in those numbers at the U.S. southern border. And just yesterday, we heard from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who tried to describe a little bit more about this announcement. We're charged with taking coordinated actions to try to stabilize flows, to um, expand regular pathways, to humanely manage all of our, our borders. Repatriations are uh, a key piece to this balanced approach. We are a nation of immigrants and we are a nation of laws. The resounding message being they're going to levy consequences against migrants and then also try to provide lawful pathways where they can. Uh, One of the questions I have after this announcement is uh, relations with Venezuela, the ability to actually repatriate that had long been a significant hurdle. Is that solved now and how? So senior administration officials would not go into detail into what exactly Venezuela agreed to uh, that would allow them to do this. What, if anything, they asked for, for example. Uh, But it is a major breakthrough for them to be able to do this. I think the outstanding question, though, here is how many flights are they willing to take? They said they're going to accept their nationalities, but how many are they going to take in a week or a month? And will that make a difference moving forward? All right. It's a big question. Priscilla Alvarez, great reporting. Thank you.
One of the cities facing a surge in migrants right now is Denver. Part of the influx in migrants there can be attributed to Texas Governor Greg Abbott's busing program that's transported more than 45,000 migrants to major cities since May. Of those, more than 2,400 were bused to Denver specifically. City officials have asked for help from the National Guard to help with the surge. They're also shortening the length of time that individuals can stay in temporary shelters in Denver. Single people, it was 21 days. Now it's 14. For families with children, the amount of time in shelters actually increased by about a week. Uh, when we're looking at where we stand at this point, the city has hundreds of migrants currently in shelters. Um, if we take a look here, you can see the increase in just the past month. The surge, we should point out here, is also impacting a number of other areas throughout the city, including public schools. Officials are working to help hundreds now of migrant families. We, on a daily basis, are having to hear from families, I have nowhere to go, I'll be sleeping on the streets with my child or my children tonight. We've heard in the past couple of weeks from families, just, my student cannot take a shower, we're living on the street. When you're at a shelter for only 30 days and then you have to leave that shelter, you might get housing or you might end up on the streets on the complete opposite side of town. Joining us now is Denver Mayor Mike Johnston. Uh, Mr. Mayor, good to have you with us this morning. Uh, you were just telling me in the break you're still getting between seven and nine buses a day, some 350 to 400 people a day. Um, where are they all going? How many are staying in Denver? Yes, you know, right now we are uh, obviously sheltering folks when they arrive, and so we have been expanding our capacity dramatically to try to serve people uh, humanely as we can. And what we find is a lot of people do have networks of support in the United States, but they were not ever intending to come to Denver. So they got put on a bus and they were trying to get to California or Chicago or to Boston because they have family there. And so people that are trying to reconnect with families or networks, we help them arrive to those places. People that are trying to uh, make a life here in Denver, we help get settled in and connect to services. I'd say the single biggest challenge we face really is I was just with uh, one of the shelters yesterday talking to migrants and the very first thing everyone will ask me is how can I work where can I get a job uh, they're not asking for help they're not asking for charity what they want is just the chance that everyone else wants to chase the American dream and be able to work uh, and our biggest challenge is we have employers CEOs who will also call me every day and say hey, I see some migrants have arrived can I hire them we have people here who want to work we have employers who want to hire them we have a Congress who stood in the way of their ability to do that. I think that's the biggest challenge we see right now. So that's one of the things I know you're asking for. Um, you've talked about maybe being able to put together a local work permitting program as you're waiting on that. Um, you were on a call, as I understand it, uh, with the White House and also uh, with the governor of Illinois on Sunday to specifically address this crisis. Coming out of that, uh, J.B. Pritzker actually sent a letter to President Biden talking about this, saying that it was you know, uns unsustainable at this point and that they're at a breaking point. You didn't sign that letter. I know you were aware of it. Do you agree with his assessments? Would you apply those to the city of Denver? I have not talked with Governor Pritzker. I have talked with the White House and leaders there. I've talked to the Secretary Mayorkas, and um, we were grateful for their actions two weeks ago. We had pushed them, Governor Polis and I, together uh, on the notion that more work authorization was going to make a big difference. The change several weeks ago to allow Venezuelans who arrived before July 31st to be able to apply for expedited work authorization is a big impact for us. Mm -hmm. Same with individuals who came through the CBP-1 app, which is an online app to be able to work. So that's what we've been advocating for. We know if people are here without work authorization, we are going to need more federal support to support them, um, but our focus is really trying to get them access to work. We think if you bring someone into the country and tell them they can't work, there's no choice but to either encourage them to break the law or to make them survive on public subsidy. We think neither of those are good options. Housing is a key issue in your city, not just for migrants, but for Denver residents. As it were, the number of unhoused people is growing. As winter is approaching, this is even more of a concern. 
What are the biggest needs right now? Is it simply shelter or does it go beyond that? Yeah, we are facing a crisis around homelessness. I declared an emergency on that when I came in as mayor just two months ago, and we're working hard to get a thousand people off the streets and into shelter who were unhoused before. Uh, we know we have that same need around housing and shelter for migrants, and we know as winter comes, that becomes uh, an even bigger crisis. And so we are trying to find additional places for them to stay. We can work on shelter, and we can work on nonprofits. We're doing a great job connecting them to services. We just know if we get someone into housing, but they don't have any stream of income to pay the rent, it's just going be a matter of time before they're facing the same crisis. So we'll get services, get them connected to housing. What we need is a stream of income for them to be able to support that housing long term. And that's where the importance of work becomes primary. Denver Mayor Mike Johnson will continue to keep an eye on the situation. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sharpening his attacks on Donald Trump at a campaign event saying the former president has, quote, lost the zip on his fastball. And CNN's David Culver takes us with him on what is probably one of the hardest assignments he ever received. Gather the boot on his foot will tell you that. Running with the Bulls in Pamplona, Spain, you don't want to miss this. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There's actually a lot of interesting new data about the election. Really? Uh, yeah, check this out. First up, when asked uh, who is your ideal candidate, 5% of people said someone who shares my morals. 5% said someone who has experience, and 90% said someone who isn't old enough to be on the golden ballot. As is often the case with comedy, it's funny because it's true. The most likely to be the nominees in 2024 presidential election would definitely qualify for the golden bachelor if they were bachelors. But one candidate who Minor wouldn't detail. is what? Minor detail. Is that how that works? Yeah, That's how that, totally. Uh, yeah. Let me watch the show. <laughs> One who wouldn't, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he's now escalating his attacks on former President Trump on Thursday with direct shots at Trump's age and stamina. We need a president that's got energy. We need a president that's going to be full throttle for eight years. We don't need any more, we don't need any, any more presidents that have lost the zip on their fastball. I mean, I've heard more cutting attacks. But it's, it, you know, it's a progression. It's building. A, it is it's definitely building. a progression for the governor. Yes. As for the other GOP rivals, after a couple of strong debate performances, Nikki Haley has seen a jolt in the polls, causing Trump to turn more attention to his former cabinet member. He's given her the name Bird Brain Nikki Haley. For what reason? Literally nobody knows. And this weekend, <laughs> Haley tweeted this picture from outside her hotel room where a birdcage was waiting, signed from, quote, the Trump campaign. Here to discuss all of this, CNN Chief National Affairs Correspondent Jeff Zeleny. Uh, I like that you're already grinning, Jeff, because you appreciate the absurdity of several things, just like I do. Uh, the one thing that I've been trying to figure out for the entirety of this primary, but I need your insight on it because you're actually on the ground, the progression of attacks, the ramping up of attacks, they're still not seeming to be full throttle and nothing has moved the former president and his standing. So what? I mean... I mean, nothing has moved him. You're right. I mean, one of the uh, 
reasons that some of these candidates, all the Republican candidates, are reluctant to really go uh, hard after Donald Trump is because of his popularity in the race. So they are trying to work around the edges, if you will. But the comments from the Florida governor there, who's 45, so he does not qualify to be on the Golden Bachelor. <laughs> but look, uh, those comments get to something that he has been uh, really talking about a lot, that this is not the same Donald Trump that you first elected. He's lost his edge. He said there he's lost his fastball. When you... Uh, uh, talk to voters who listen to that message. Some people agree with him that he is different. So there is a sense of the the candidates are trying to go around the margins because they don't necessarily want to offend some of those uh, Republican voters who like the former president. But look, all of the candidates are going to be in Iowa this weekend, all the major candidates. Tomorrow marks 100 days until the Iowa caucuses open this Republican nominating contest. And Iowa is the place because it votes it devotes uh, first to slow Trump's rise. But as we get closer and closer, even if someone does slow it there, can they slow it other places? Can his rise be slowed? Or is Donald Trump going to essentially uh, march to the nomination? That is a question. Voters still, of course, have to vote. They have open minds. But boy, uh, at this stage yeah. in October, uh, DeSantis thought he would be in a far different spot. He certainly did um, his campaign actually moving a third of its staff to Iowa. Let's take a look at some of these right. most recent polls, right, specifically comparing Trump and Biden, uh, this new Marquette Law Survey polling, which I know Phil is really hot on as well. I just think it's fascinating. No, it is. No, but I'm agreeing with you. It is fascinating when we look at where we're. I mean, it's a it's a dead heat. It absolutely is. And look, I mean, uh, polls this far out, general election polls, we have to put every degree of caveat uh, on them, but this is why it matters. I mean, this is going to be a close race. If you look at the at the numbers here on inflation, economy, immigration, look at the immigration moves the White House made a yesterday. The president's going to be talking about job creation later today. Look, this is a divided country. This is going to be a close race. So that is one thing that the Democrats and the president's team are trying to uh, wake folks up to the idea that, uh, yes, this is going to be a close race. Something very interesting happened yesterday that could uh, shape the dynamic of this as well. Not talked about a lot, but the Green Party candidate, Cornell West, decided to drop his Green Party affiliation and run as an independent. The reason that matters is he will not be on the ballot in as many states. So one thing the White House is worried about is third party candidates. So that is a significant development, a help for uh, President Biden, uh, perhaps. But look, this is going to be a close race. The next year is going to be a closely divided. But one thing, the former president weighing in on the speaker's race, which you guys have been talking about earlier this morning, that could have uh, a perhaps a boomerang effect as well. Not all Republicans are pleased by that. So the divisions, as we end this week on Friday, think of all that has happened just in the last week, narrowly averting a government shutdown. One could be around the corner. Uh, in terms of governing versus not governing, that is something hanging over this race that voters, of course, will have to make their decisions on. It's a reflection, Jeff, that makes me tired. Uh, first and foremost, the, my fascination with the poll, and I need to defend myself to Jeff because he'll be like, dude, you can't just talk about one single national poll. It's the issues that you laid yeah. out. And the fact that Trump is plus 20 on like the four most important issues, and yet they are still neck and neck. Yep. And I think that underscores what a lot of Republicans are concerned about, about him being at the top of that ticket. Jeff Zeleny, we appreciate you, my friend, as always. Thank you. You guys have a great day. You too. Uh, just ahead here, will the strikes across this country have an impact on the September jobs report? The Labor Department just releasing those numbers. We're going to break them down for you on the other side of this break. 
We're following breaking news. That's right, it is Jobs Day. The Labor Department just released a September jobs report, and the economy added 336,000 new jobs last month. Let's get straight to CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon to break down these numbers. Uh, wow, again. Wow. <laughs> the last 15 months has been like that. Clearly coming in hot, guys. Just to put this in perspective, this is about double what economists were expecting. So, Phil, as you said, 336,000 added in the month of September. The expectation was closer to 170. The unemployment rate remaining steady at 3.8%. Wages moderating just a bit. That has an inflationary impact. And let's take a look at where we saw some of the strongest job gains. Some of this a continuation of what we have already seen. So leisure and hospitality adding jobs there. Healthcare adding jobs there. Uh, guys, this is... Uh, an interesting one, because all week we had been getting these conflicting reports about the state of the labor market. Is it cooling? Is it heating back up? This seems to suggest it's still pretty hot, right? So uh, just to give you some perspective, over the last month, last year rather, we've seen an average monthly gain of about 271,000, and this is on top of that. Revisions, very important here. For the prior two months, we added an additional 120,000 jobs more than expected, 120,000 jobs more than expected. So uh, it's still a strong labor market, which is great for the American worker in terms of what this means for the larger economy in terms of the Fed. Well, this seems to suggest that the next time they meet at the end of this month, October 31st and November 1st, the chances of another rate hike have increased. Very strong. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing when you look at those numbers and you put it in perspective too. we had over the past 12 months and yeah. then seeing what we're getting today, more revisions upward. Also with us this morning, CNN economics commentator, Catherine Rampell. So Catherine, when you look at this, it's fascinating because we, we are hearing from the president later today, who will often speak, understandably, after a strong jobs report. There has been this consistent attempted push at Bidenomics and selling how much this strong economy is due to the president's actions. Do these continued jobs reports, are they starting to chip away at that? Are they starting to help to make that case? They certainly don't hurt. I mean, these numbers are really, really strong. Now, I would take all of them with a little bit of a grain of salt because there's like wacky seasonality happening here. The strikes probably are not included or not accounted for. But even so, these are very strong numbers. To what extent Biden to take, can take credit for them? He's going to take credit no matter what. <laughs> you know, I think we are seeing a very hot economy here. And look, um, a lot of sectors are doing much better than many people expected. Food uh, services, for example, is back to its pre-pandemic highs. Uh, another thing that, again, I don't know if it's exactly due to, to, to Biden versus other factors that's worth noting is that women's labor force participation, at least for, for prime working age women, is at a record high today uh, through this report. So there's a lot of good news to tout. And I think the president's attitude will be is if he's going to get blamed for bad stuff, he might as well take I credit for the good stuff, too. That's not a terrible policy. Um, I have to imagine what futures are doing right now. And I say that because this was like the week where I feel like every newspaper had the front page story of like rates are really going to start to bite finally over mm -hmm. time and market mm -hmm. participants are starting to recognize that. Well, that tells the picture, right? So just to provide some perspective, just before the numbers crossed, our team looked at futures and Dow was up slightly. Just as soon as they crossed, they tanked about 180 points. Uh, they're now off still about 180 points. So the reason why, I mean, this is good news for the American worker. Right. This is good news about the labor market, except that it means the Federal Reserve, that Jay Powell and that committee, it now sort of um, gives them a bit more push to increase rates further. And we have already seen 11 rate hikes since 
March of, of 2022, 2021. Let me get my, my math here. 2020, 2022, the year has it gone by. Together this yes, point. exactly. So we have already seen 11 rate hikes. They have already boosted rates 5%. And yet the recession that so many people thought was inevitable never materialized. But every time we see the Fed continue to raise rates, it makes borrowing more expensive and it sort of increases that likelihood. So that's why we're sort of in this period where good news is bad news, good news is weird news. Like, I mean, that is the it's space that we're alternate in. universe that we've been living in now for Bizarre some world. time, right, yes. where none of it makes sense. You mentioned Catherine the strikes um, and, and likely not involved in these numbers. When will we have a real sense of that? It depends how long the strikes continue. Uh, one would imagine that the UAW strikes, for example, might appear in next month's mm -hmm. report. Uh, so the, the, rather the report that comes out for the month of October that is released in early November if the strikes continue through the week where they conduct the survey. The, the difficulty with all of this is that even though these numbers are reported as being a monthly number, they're really focusing on a snapshot in time during that month. So that's why you don't see them in these data, but you might see them in the following month's data. Same deal with, for example, the writer's strike ending. You might see a little bump in next month's report because all those people went back to work this month. We will be watching. A snapshot. Bizarre take them world. all yes. together <laughs> and live in Bizarro World, which has been, you know, something. You know to what? Hang out. There are a lot of great people here in Bizarro World, so I'm happy, <laughs> well, I'm happy come to join, join us. <laughs> At least there's good company around, Catherine. Thanks, guys, very much. Well, the annual Running of the Bulls in Pamplona, Spain, is no place for a journalist unless you're David Culver. <laughs> Watch. And you're holding your ground. And I'm listening to Dennis's command. David Culver joins us next Ooh. to tell us why he did it and why maybe he wouldn't again. Or maybe not. We'll see. Indulge in the creamy flavor of Bob Evans mashed potatoes two-count single-serve cups. Two individual servings of potatoes, milk, and butter. For a homemade taste you'll love, ready in minutes. Bring home the perfectly sized comfort of Bob Evans today. Only the Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed lets you both sleep up to 13 degrees cooler or warmer on either side and at your ideal level of comfort, your Sleep Number setting. The all-new Queen Sleep Number C2 Smart Bed is only $880. Sleep next level. Shop now, only at Sleep Number. Liberty Mutual customized my car insurance, and I saved hundreds. With the money I saved, I started a dog walking business. I was a bit nervous at first, but then I figured, it's just walking, right? <laughs> oh! You're so cute. Only pay for what you need. Liberty, 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 liberty. When did I call Leaf Filter? When I saw my gutters overflowing onto my porch. Leaf Filter is a permanent gutter solution, so you never have to worry about costly damage from clogged gutters again. It's the easiest call you can make. Call 833-LEAF-FILTER today or visit leaffilter.com. This is American infrastructure, a prime target for cyber attacks. But the same AI-powered security that protects all of Google also defends these services for everyone who lives here. Not being able to see up close can be frustrating. Trying to view your mail, enjoy your favorite book, or even read a prescription bottle can be impossible. 
Introducing Eye Candy, the sweet new way to see everything bigger, brighter, and better than ever before. Fun in design, Eye Candy is no toy. This lightweight, easy to hold magnifier utilizes an optical grade lens that enlarges print by 300%. Yes, 300%. Eye Candy is really a step above the rest. The magnification is fantastic and it makes life so much easier. Embedded in Eye Candy's frame are 12 anti glare LED lights that dramatically help increase clarity. It's a flashlight and magnifier in one. Even with my reading glasses, I'd still have a problem with the small print. With eye candy, everything is bright and clear. My eyes never feel strained. Lightweight and portable, eye candy is ideal for extended periods of reading or when you're on the go. I use eye candy when I go out to dinner. Reading the menu, so much easier, especially in the dim light. Zooming in on your electronic devices only lets you see a small portion of your message or pictures. With eye candy, you can see it all. I love it. I showed it to my husband and it strangely disappeared. I purchased two more. We keep one in the kitchen, one in the garage, and one in the car. Read recipes, prescription bottles, or nutritional information, and never miss the fine print. But wait, in stock alert. Our best-selling full-page magnifier is now in stock and ready to ship to you immediately. So don't wait. Order your eye candy now for the low manufacturer direct price of just $19.99. Due to the immense popularity of eye candy, there's a strict limit of three per order at this low price, and we cannot guarantee it will remain in stock for long. To guarantee delivery, you must call or click now. Call one 800 402 2029 or visit tryicandy.com. So call 1-800-406-2029 now. Schwan's Home Delivery has a new name. Yellow. Yellow. No, I think the H is silent. Yellow. What? What? Schwan's Home Delivery is now yellow. Order now at yellow.com. Well, this morning we're getting an up-close look at the world-famous running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. It's a tradition that dates back more than 400 years, but with it comes controversy, danger, even death. Seen as David Culver suited up in the traditional white garb and red scarf to capture the experience for the next episode of The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper that airs this Sunday. Here's a clip. It's a bit terrifying because you're starting to think, all right, I'm committed, I'm on, and I'm going to stay on. As we gather as a group, we kind of find our positioning. It's crazy to think that you're standing your ground after first the bells, and then that rocket goes off. And you're holding your ground. And I'm listening to Dennis's command. CNN's David Culver joins us now. Uh, David, this looks like an awesome assignment for someone else but me to do. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad you did it. Uh, can I ask, I, I can't wait to see this, but what, what did you learn, uh, not just from the running, but for the whole process of reporting this out? 
Yeah, that once is enough. Uh, that, that's the big <laughs> takeaway. No, um, well, let me ask you guys this. When, when you think of running of the bulls, what comes to mind? You and a boot. Well, that's true. Probably. I think, you know, honestly, for most, I think it's, it's perhaps intoxicated people who, who would, you know, kind of flock to Spain and do that. That, by the way, is my boot. Yes. I think it's people who perhaps <laughs> have some sort of um, altered mindset in the moment and, and desire for a thrill like none other. And, and there are those thrill seekers. You get a lot of foreigners that flock into Pamplona, Spain, and this happens in July. Now, we're, we're telling this story now because bull running and bull fighting season, because they're intertwined in many ways, run through October in Spain. And, and there's a lot of controversy mixed in this. But I think for me, it, it wasn't a decision ahead of time. Uh, I think when I texted my family afterwards, they said, you did what? And, and you're hurt. <laughs> there wasn't a lot, a lot of sympathy. Um, and I think some of our bosses, too, were kind of surprised that I decided to go forward with it because it was a game time decision. It was something that, you know, as I was talking to my team on the ground, Natalie Angley and Jordan Gazzardo, and uh, Joey Tehan and Martin Burke. And I mentioned them because they literally carried me for the back half of this assignment uh, after I got injured. But it was wanting to know what that thrill is that people go after. And it's not just those who are foreigners. You've got locals who do it year after year. It's deeply intertwined in their culture. And you've got folks who are foreigners, who are Americans, who have just fallen in love with this culture and who have made this an annual ritual and who are very serious about it. You noted, too, though, the, the controversy that is there. And I think every year yeah. we hear more and more of that. It's being amplified, and not just by animal rights groups, but, but just in general, people look at this and they say, wait a minute, why is this happening in 2023? I know you're getting into that yeah. as well on Sunday night. We do get into it a little bit because when you think of the running of the bulls, you, you don't realize, first of all, this is eight days straight. So you have a set of six different bulls that run over eight days. The bulls are picked from the cream of the crop across Spain. And at the end of the day, those bulls that run in the morning are, are killed and they're killed in a bullfight. And those are very disturbing. I mean, to, to be blunt, I didn't even go to one of those bullfights because they're difficult to watch. So I think a lot of folks are trying to reconcile that. And yet you realize any criticism of that from outside the culture is taken as, as highly controversial as well. People take offense to it. Mm -hmm. David, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing this tonight. We're all glad that you're okay, because when we heard that you were injured yeah. during this, we were like, mm, mm-hmm. So I'm glad you're okay, my friend. Boot. I'm glad the boot is gone, and we look forward yeah, to Sunday night. me too. Thanks, guys, me Thanks, too. Bye. You can catch David's full report this Sunday on The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper right here on CNN at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. Now, amid the crises at the southern border, this week's CNN Hero is focusing on the children whose families are living in limbo at the shelters, in shelters at the border, waiting to enter the U.S. legally. When she learned that some children are out of school for months, even years, she decided to bring the classroom to them. Re meet with the remor remarkable Estefania Revillon. I just kept feeling like the weight of this crisis was on my shoulders. Schools are the way to be able to help them heal. So I thought, why don't we turn a bus into a mobile classroom? We currently have three mobile school buses, and we have also opened four school locations along the border. We partner with shelters to provide bilingual educational programs for migrant children and refugee children at the U.S.-Mexico border. Yo soy de Colombia. And a lot of them are always very surprised that I myself was a migrant child. I always want the kids to realize that being a migrant is not something they need to be ashamed of. Gracias por compartir. Te quiero mucho. Okay? 
I want our efforts to be something permanent. And that when it's all said and done, that we would be proud to look back and say that we were there when people needed us the most. And to see Estefania's work in action and learn about her, uh, more about her own journey, go to CNNHeroes.com. Well, the race for speaker heating up overnight after former President Trump threw his support behind Jim Jordan. So how does that impact the Vegas odds? Hmm. Well, there's only one man who can give us that answer. The man with all the answers, Harry Enton, who's going to break it down for us next. So we know the House Speaker job is up for grabs this morning. There are already a couple of names in the hat. Perhaps you're a betting man or woman. So then at that point, you say, what is the market telling you about? Mm. Who's going to get the gavel? That is when we turn to CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton. You're actually looking at the odds here. We for are the next you. speaker. We are. How active is this in terms of uh, <laughs> a betting set? You know what? There are a lot of people who like betting on politics. And at this particular point, the betting jobs are becoming the next speaker. We have a favorite here in Jim Jordan, a 53% chance of becoming the next speaker. Steve Scalise at a 32% chance. Of course, last night there was some big movement for Mr. Jordan. And why of that was because Donald Trump endorsed him. And we can see the betting odds on Jim Jordan becoming the next speaker have been rising steadily. 16% on Wednesday, 30% before the Trump endorsement last night, and now at 53%. So at this particular point, Jim Jordan looks like the favorite. Of course, if you do the math very quickly here, 53 plus 32 doesn't get you to 100%. So maybe it could be somebody else as well. Hmm. Hang on, I'm just doing the math. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Okay, oh, that makes a good point. So the Trump endorsement, clearly the race is over, right? Based on every endorsement he's ever given. Is that fair? I don't think that that's particularly fair. So GOP candidates endorsed by Trump in non-incumbent primaries in 2022 won 84% of the time. So clearly there's a big reason to think that Donald Trump will get will provide a boost to Jim Jordan. But still, that leaves 16 percent chance that, you know, based upon past endorsements, it could be somebody else. So it's not a full blown endorsement. Donald Trump's chance of becoming next speaker. I know a lot of people have been talking about that. Just two percent, according to the betting markets. But perhaps the biggest question is, will this get finished by next Wednesday? Sixty one percent in the betting markets say yes. Thirty nine percent say no. Please, God, be this 61 percent. I think we're all hoping on that. We can't go through another, what is that, 15 ballots like last time? Yeah, not going to happen. And also the 2 percent chance, like, be better, Harry. It's zero. It was always zero. Wow. What? Is the margin of error plus or minus 2 percent? I just love Harry. I never say never. I can tell. I know. I That's why you're good at your job. By the way, not. way to dress like me today. Obviously, as my idol, both in fashion and in life generally, Harry, I'm always trying to be. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Harry Anton, thanks, brother. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. It's great to see you. Always Everybody, a pleasure. Have a great weekend. CNN News Central starts right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.